Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, I've got a question for you. How many of you are in ministry? Okay, a few, few hands went up. Well, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your hand should have just gone up. Unless you're not awake yet. You thought maybe it's time for nap time since the guy's up there sitting down. And I apologize for sitting down, but there is biblical precedent for a teacher sitting down. But this whole concept of being in ministry is something that we're going to look at. It's part of what we're going to look at today. You see, many of us have, have missed the fact that the moment we step over the line and become a follower of Jesus Christ, we are all called to ministry. The problem is we've relegated people into two groups in our minds, and particularly in our, in our Western society and Christianity. We think of so-called regular Christians, those who come and, and, and give, their give their tithes and offerings, at least some do, and then go home and they come for the, the show. They come to be, be a consumer of what the professionals are doing up there on the stage. Because there's other people who up the discipleship and they take the extra step. They're like the special ops Christians, the pros who go into full-time ministry. But the Bible doesn't know anything of that concept. In fact, the early church... In the early church, there was hardly any vocational ministry. It's probably because the churches were pretty tiny. They met mostly where? In homes. They met in homes. They didn't have these big, large halls. Very rarely they meet like this. And if you have no mobility and it's illegal to, to meet, you know, you're probably going to meet in a, in a house. And, and house churches cannot afford a junior high or, or a youth pastor. They can't afford to, to hire big staff to have worship leaders and, and things like that. And over the years, as, as the church changed, as God blessed situations, churches have grown larger, and we've needed people that were set aside to give leadership and to do all this kind of stuff, but they are no more in full-time ministry than every single one of us who follows Jesus. You're called to ministry the very moment that you step across the line. Now, you may be a rookie at it. You may not be very good at it. You may not have practiced it very much, but it's not something that comes later. It's something that comes the instant that you faith Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You're adopted into his family. The Holy Spirit comes and starts to change you from the inside out. Now, on your life notes, there's a section there that says the truth about full-time ministry. And the first fill in the blank I want you to put there is, I want you to write in every single one of us. Say it with me. Every single one of us is in it. The only question is where? Where is he calling you to be in full-time representation? And, and where are you going to earn whatever you need to put food on the table and a, and a roof over your head? But we are all in it. And with that said, I want us to look first off, before we look at Mark this week, I want us to look at four passages from the New Testament that describe every single one of us as believers. And I want you to follow with me your life notes, and I want you to write a word that describes 
us as it comes from each one of these verses. And the first verse is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You know, we studied 1 Peter last year. Those of you that were here, um, those of you that weren't, you can pick it up on our podcast. And, and I'd like to welcome those that are listening to us on the podcast this morning. But from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter's talking to Christians here. He's talking to the church. A people belonging to God. So that's you. That's all of us. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So I'm a priest. You are a priest. Turn the person next to you and say, you are a priest. (laughs) Write that word down there on your notes. If you're a Jesus follower, you are a priest. And what what was the role of the priest before Jesus came? The role of the priest was to represent the people to God and represent God to the people. But after the cross, Jesus says, it is finished, it's complete, it is done. He says, you all come into full-time ministry. And if you started following Jesus two weeks ago, you're still a priest. You may be a rookie priest, but you're a priest. The second verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. And it says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You are the body You're the hands and feet of Jesus. It's not just those of us who are leaders. It's not just those who are in vocational ministry. It's not just those who are out on the mission field over in Africa or wherever. All of us are the hands and feet of Jesus. Each one of us has a part of being the body of Christ. And we have different roles. I don't expect my hand to see. Okay, I don't put my hand over my notes here and expect to be able to understand and remember what's, what's in my notes. I don't expect my, my ear to speak. And in the body of Christ, it's the same way. We're not all called to do the same things. But if we aren't doing our part, the body is broken, right? You know, the body can be broken if, if all the parts aren't doing the parts. It's the same as if our human body is missing a part or there's a part that's not functional, You can still live with parts missing, but you will not be able to do all that you could do if all the things in your body were the way they should be. So you are a priest if you're a Jesus follower. You represent Jesus. You have full access to Jesus. There's nobody out there that has more access by by role, by education, or anything else than you do. They don't have more authority than you do to represent him. You are the body of Jesus. The only question is, what part? The next verse is 2 Corinthians 5.20. And therefore, Paul says this. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what does an ambassador do? Well, an ambassador goes to a different country, a different people, uh, and he represents a prime minister or a king or a president or something. And they speak for the leader. They speak for their nation. They act for their leader. They act for their nation. And how they live is a reflection upon their leader and upon their nation. It's, It's a reflection on the person that sent them or the people that sent them. And that's every single one of us. The last one I want you to look at briefly here before we get to Marcus, Colossians 3.17. And you talk about full-time, he really hits it here. He says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Now, I've, I've run across this in the church over my lifetime where you know, a lot of times we think of in the name of Jesus, we think of it kind of like a, like a magic phrase. You know, it's kind of like the postage stamp that you put on there to make sure that, that it gets there. So we tag it in at the, end of our, at the end of our prayers, or we think it's like the send button on an email. You know, the, it's still there, but when you hit that in the name of Jesus, bam, it, it goes off. That's not what he's talking about here. Praying in the name of Jesus means to pray representing me. When he told his disciples, pray in my name, he means pray the way I would pray. Pray as you represent me. Uh, it's, it's in the name of is another way of looking. Or another way in our, in our culture is it's in the power of attorney of. That's what that POA stands for up there. In the power of attorney of. If you are a Jesus follower, you are called in everything you do and everything you say to do it with the full authority of Jesus behind you. And in everything you do, you do it in the power of attorney as you represent Jesus. Do you see why I say you're in full-time ministry? Now, the passage we're looking at today as we continue our, our walk through the book of Mark is the first time that Jesus sent a group of people out to represent him where he wasn't, when he wasn't there. And so far, we've seen Jesus doing things. We've seen him teaching the crowd, and we've seen, we've seen him coming back and explaining it to his inner circle, his close followers. But he's the one that's doing the good things. He's doing powerful things. He's doing miracles. And they're all hanging with him. And, and now he's, send, he's going to send them out for the very first time where he says, okay, you've seen, you've heard enough. Now you go out in my authority and in my power, and I want you to represent me. So we're going to take a look at this first time that the 12, the, the inner circle, the, the apostles, his, his posse, his entourage, his group are sent out. Now there's another passage that we're going to look at a little bit later briefly where he sent out 72. And then after he had died and he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven, there were 120 left. And he said, hey, wait, wait there in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. But once he comes, y'all go out. And, and then now it's all of us go out. So let's read the passage, and then we'll come back and see what it tells us about representing God well. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. It says, Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now verse 12, it says they went out and they preached that people should what? What's that word there? That they should repent. Okay, that needs a little bit of explanation here so we understand what they did because in modern-day American culture, if somebody goes out and preaches to people that they should repent, there's a picture, there's a caricature that, 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 that comes to mind. For many, it's a guy on a street corner with a sign pointing his finger at people saying, turn or burn, turn or burn, you're going to hell. Back when I was at Ohio State, every, this guy came around every single spring, usually in March, and he would go on the oval there at Ohio State, and he'd just be out there just preaching, hellfire and brimstone, hellfire and brimstone. I watched this guy for, for the first couple of years, and, I, and you know, he, he's just, it was like a, someone with a shotgun, just, just shooting everybody. He didn't know these people. He, he, just, he just was judging. All he heard was judgment. And I waited until like the second or third year, I forget it was, that he was there, and you know, I would stop and listen to him. Most people were just laughing at him. I said, brother, where's the love? 
Yes, yes, people know, need to know they're sinners, but where's the love of Jesus? All you're doing is condemning these people. And it really bothered me all the way back then in you know, the late 70s when I'm hearing this thing. And that's the kind of the character that, that I think of whenever I, whenever I hear this, hear about repent, turn or burn. We kind of cringe, we kind of walk by those people. But the word repent simply means to turn around. It means to change your direction. And, and to preach means to proclaim. It doesn't mean getting in people's face, poking them in the eye, you know, screaming at them. It just means, it just means proclaiming. And so these, these, these 12, they went to places and they said, hey folks, the Messiah's come. The kingdom of God is here. And that's what Jesus has been saying. So I'm calling you to turn. Turn back to God. And that's what they did. And they set out and they went from village to village preaching. They are proclaiming the good news. The good news. It's going to be important later when, when I apply how we represent him well. They didn't go out and stand on a soapbox and, and say, turn or burn, sinner. They went out and they gave people the good news. The kingdom of God is here. And you can see it from, the, from its hors d'oeuvres and the healing, the casting out of demons, the, the fixing of your problems. But there's something even more important. There's something far more important than all this stuff that, that we're doing. And let me tell you about it. You need to turn around and quit following your own will, following your own way, and you need to pursue the things of God. And that was their message, and that should be our message. So now we move on, and suddenly, suddenly in Mark's chapter 6, it's like, what happened? Did Mark see a squirrel? If you look at verses 12 and 13 that I just read, they went out, they proclaimed to the people, they told them they should turn around, they drove out the demons, they, they anointed many sick people, and the people were healed. And then verse 30 will pick back up and with the guys coming back and giving their report to Jesus. But Mark, very out of character, because as I've told you before, Mark is a, a fast-moving, action-focused gospel. Everything's quick and immediate. But suddenly, after they go out, but before he has the verse that says they returned, Mark takes this little side trip, this, this detour about John the Baptist. And I'm going to read through the section here, but you're going to have to hang with me till the end of the message to, for me to explain why it's there. Now, I want you to remember before we read it that John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He was a few months older. We've already seen that when Jesus began his ministry at about age 30, uh, John is already out in the wilderness, and, and he's calling Jewish people to get right with God. He told them just being a child of Abraham doesn't cut it. Just because you were born a Jew, you know, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that you're, that you're part of God's kingdom. You need to follow God. Your heart needs to be in it, not just be circumcised physically. You need to be circumcised in the heart. And so Jesus goes out there to his cousin, and, he, and, and as he begins his ministry, and one of the things that Jesus does is he gets baptized by John. It's a baptism of repentance, even though Jesus never sinned. But this was a step. This was a step that he took to identify with the people, with us, that he was going to die for our sins, and then the Holy Spirit falls upon him, and he, he begins his ministry. We saw that at the beginning of Mark, and now, he, now Mark's going to circle back around, and John has been killed, and he's going to tell us the story of John's death, and this is where Mark chose, chose to put it. This king who had killed him was freaking out at the stories that were going on because he thought, oh my gosh, John the Baptist is back. The guy I killed is alive again. So let's read it here, uh, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for John's name had been, or from, sorry, King Herod had heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others say he was Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. And then Mark goes into this gruesome story. This is, this is probably a story that you didn't have on the flannel board in Sunday school. Look. 
It says, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So you, so you got the king, and he's got a brother named Philip, and, and, and Herod tells Philip, hey, your wife's hot. I want her. I want her to be my wife. So, so you need to divorce her. Let me, let me have her. In case you didn't know, that's, that's not a good thing. Okay? Now, that's going to be awkward at the Thanksgiving dinner, you know, there in the family. So you got John the Baptist, God's spokesperson for righteousness, telling Herod, who's supposed to be the king and an example for the rest of Israel, the Jewish people, God's people. It says, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So it's like saying, I'd like, like for you to tickle my ears, but I don't want you to change my life. I just want to hear what you're saying. Mark continues, verse 21. <clears throat> Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. Must not have been too drunk, but he was drunk enough. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and then she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Oh, verse 30, by the way, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. You know, Mark finishes chasing the squirrel. It's like, what? You know, like I said, you're going to have to wait till, till I tell you later. But before we get to that, here's what I want to do. I want to take a step back, and I want to ask from this passage and the rest of Scripture, out of the fact that we are all called to full-time ministry, what can we glean about how to represent Jesus well? How can you and I represent Jesus well? And on your life notes, there's, there's, a, there's an outline. There's five principles that I want us to share today. And these apply to every single one of us. It isn't a matter of just picking one or the other. We need to look at all of them together. Whether we're one of the 12 that were sent out by Jesus, or one of the 72, or one of the 120 after the day of Pentecost, or whether it's you and me today, five things that we need to keep in mind if we want to represent Jesus well. And number one, if we're going to represent Jesus well, we have to get out of the holy huddle. We have to get out of the holy huddle. When we start in uh, verse 7 of Mark chapter 6 today, it says, He sent them where? Out. He sent them out. You, know, you and I can never represent Jesus well if we are salt that stays in the shaker. We can never represent Jesus well if we think that our number one goal in life is to avoid the cooties of the world by, by staying in our holy huddles. And he's going to say, that wasn't what I assigned you to do. We have to get out of our holy huddle. 
But we often make the mistake of thinking that godliness is somehow shown by living a sheltered life, by living a, a cloistered life, living in our, in our Christian ghettos. And, and it's been that way for thousands of years. And the moment that you and I think that a sheltered life is godly, we lose our power to have an impact for Jesus. Because I want you to write this down. There's no impact without contact. There's no impact without contact. There never has been and there never will be. Some of you, maybe you've, you've changed jobs over your career or wherever, and you found yourself in an environment where you kind of, you wring your hands a little bit because you go, oh, this, this place is, this workplace is so ungodly. I just, I just want so badly to, 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 to be out of here. And I'm going to tell you, no, you should be praising Jesus. Thank him for that. Ask him to give you the strength. You're there because the holy huddle doesn't need you. The world needs you. The world that Jesus has sent you to needs you. What did Jesus do? You know, remember back years ago, we had this, uh, this thing, WWJD, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus, the Son of God, he put on human flesh, and he entered this sin-fallen world, and he rubbed elbows with sinful people in order that he might bring salvation to us. And if you read the scriptures, what they do? What the church folk do? They judged him for it. They cast stones at him for it. They didn't like him hanging around with those people, with, with those sinners, that kind of people. A holy huddle, you know, so we don't get touched by sin or whatever it would, it doesn't make us more godly. It makes us more ineffective. You know, you go to, to work for a place where everybody's a Christian or you send your kids to a Christian school or you only homeschool or you, you only use the Christian yellow pages. You know, I won't let anybody come in to fix anything in my house unless they're listening to the Christian yellow pages as if someone just putting a fish on the back of their work truck makes them a Christian. But that's the thought pattern that we have. Jesus began to send them out. Number two, if we're going to represent him well, we've got to be careful that we keep the main thing the main thing. The bottom line of what Jesus sent them out to do was to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God was here and to call people to repentance, to change. He empowered them to cast out impure spirits and to heal, but the main thing was not to go out and fix everything. The main thing was to call people to him, to call people to righteousness, to call people to God. And it's easy for us to take secondary things, which doesn't mean that they're not important, Secondary things are very important, but to dial so much into them that we never get around to the main thing, God has left you wherever it is in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, wherever, wherever he has you, so that you can have influence. And the main thing is not that they like you. The main thing is they turn to Jesus. That's the main thing, that they turn to Jesus. So let me give you some examples of things that, that we often make the main thing, some things that we must not forget the first one is this. Poverty, injustice, and disease are not life's biggest problems. Now, that's not politically correct to say that, but listen to me and hang with me here. These things are big. God cares about them, and so should we. Don't forget, Jesus empowered them to go out and cast out impure spirits. He empowered them to heal. Jesus solved these kind of problems. People were hungry. They didn't have food. Jesus provided food food for them. But you read through the entirety of Scripture, there's a ton about helping even our enemies, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, or, or helping the needy, helping the poor. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible about social justice, about the fact that we have a God who causes his reign to fall on the wicked and on the godly, that both his enemies and his friends, his sons and his daughters, he gives blessing to. 
And if we represent him, we are to do that. All these things are important, but none of them is the main thing. They are secondary things. They are what we do to earn credibility. They're what we do because we have a heart uh, of a compassionate God that, that hates to see injustice, that hates to see pain, that hates to see suffering. A God that did not create the world like that. Our sin brought all that into the world, and when heaven comes, none of that will be there. But we're doing the work of God when we deal with poverty, injustice, and disease. But it's not the main thing. In Luke chapter 10, this is where Jesus sent the 72 out that I referred to earlier. Listen to how pumped up they were when they got back. It says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. But look what he reminds him. Look what he tells him. He says, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, man, I gave you all this stuff. I gave you all the power to do this stuff. All that stuff is good. It's so cool in your neighborhood, your workplace, your communities. You should be helping and helping people in this way. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is that we do that as the hors d'oeuvres leading them to the dinner, which is knowing Jesus Christ and heaven. In Mark 8, 36, it says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? If all I do is, is poverty, injustice, and disease, and I'm leaving the, all the rest to anybody else, then all we've done is to make the path to hell nicer, kinder, and healthier. We haven't done the main thing. The second thing to remember is this. Our goal is not to get non-Christians to live and vote like Christians. Our goal is not to get non-Christians to live and vote like Christians. There is a political dead-end detour that so many Christians have taken as if, as if that's where the answer to our world and our culture is found. Now please hear me, because the political route didn't work. Jesus came to show them that the political Messiah wasn't what he was. As Christians, though, we do need to be involved in the political arena. If you have the right to vote and you don't use it, then I feel you have no right to complain about the way things end up. We as Christians need to be out there. We need to, we need to be speaking in the marketplace of ideas respectfully. Respectfully. And we need to be speaking in the, in the political arena. We need to be running for office. We need to be taking our biblical principles with us to the ballot box. All that sort of stuff. But it's not the main thing. We will never fix the world through politics. Let me say that again. We will never fix the world through politics. I don't care whether it's red or blue. It doesn't matter. We will never fix this world if we, if we install Christian morality on non-Christian people and we try to Christianize our country. We need to change people one heart at a time. That's the main thing. The Spirit of God has worked in places that were very impacted by the Christian culture for good, and He has worked in places very powerfully where Christians are hated, imprisoned, illegal, because the main thing is salvation in Jesus Christ. And whenever we get sidetracked to something else, again, we just pave the pathway to hell with nice people, with more moral lifestyles that cannot make us right for eternity. The third thing we need never to forget God wants his enemies won over, not wiped out. God wants his enemies won over, not wiped out. 
You know, there's a phrase that you're probably all familiar with called spiritual warfare, and you've heard it, and then sometimes, unfortunately, it gets drug over into the culture wars. And it's really sad because in the Bible, when it talks about spiritual warfare, it's never talking about Christians against non-Christians. It's us in the flesh. It's us against the principalities, the spirits of the dark wars. It's against, against Satan and his minions. It's not against our neighbor. It's, it, it's, it's the Spirit of God working in our life. That's what spiritual warfare is. You see, in a war, in a war, your goal is to wipe out people. Your war is to annihilate them. Our goal is not to wipe out God's enemies. Our goal is to win them over. And I wish that we would use the language of persuasion instead of warfare because it would be so much different. Ezekiel was a prophet. He's an Old Testament prophet, and he speaks the heart of God in, in, in 18, chapter 18, verse 23. When he speaks for God, he says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Remember Jonah. Jonah goes and he wants to preach hellfire and damnation on Nineveh. And he gets upset when God, God uh, redeems Nineveh. He gets upset with that. We have a God who pursues, not a God who's angry just waiting to throw lightning bolts at his enemies. Yes, his wrath his judgment, they're real. They're there. And that's why he warns us. But why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Why is there still time? Because God wants to see his enemies become his sons and daughters. And my job and your job, if I'm representing him, is to do my best to persuade his arch enemies to come on over and become his sons and his daughters. I love the passage in, in Romans that reminds us of this. It says when, when God went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross for us, he died for us while we were his enemies, not after we cleaned up our act. And if I'm going to represent him well, I need to pray for, I need to pursue, I need to rub shoulders with not just Christians, not just with neutral people, but with the actual enemies of God. He sent them out to do the main thing. The third principle we find in this passage in all of Scripture about representing God well is this. You and I need to look for open doors and walk away from closed doors. Hey, I want you to go into these towns. And when you stay, you stay in that house until you're done and then you move on. And if they won't receive you or will not listen to you, leave the place. I think a lot of us have been taught to, to look for open doors. But we've also been taught from the way I observe people that we're supposed to knock down the closed doors. That's not what we're to do. No one has ever been argued, nagged, or conjoled into the kingdom of heaven. When the door is closed, here's what you need to do. Walk away. That's what Jesus said. You don't need to take one last parting shot. You know, the server that's not interested in you and your Jesus story in the restaurant, and so you leave a tract with two $1 bills for a tip. Don't do that. When the door's closed, shut up. I'd say you ought to leave a big tip when that happens, an over-the-top tip. You, you do no good when you go beyond the close. And you know what you actually do when you keep pushing when they say no more? You actually harden their hearts. You make it harder for them when life falls apart, and you make it harder for them to turn and say to someone, to another believer, help me understand this, because you've been a pest for Jesus. He's never asked us to do that. He says, go into the towns. If they want you, if the door's open, stay there. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. Let me give you a good working definition of an open and a closed door. 
Here's what an open door is. An open door is when they either literally or figuratively say, tell me more. Tell me more. It's when you're in the workplace and someone says, well, why do you do that? Or, you know, how do you get through? How did you get through this? How did you get through your divorce and stuff like that? And you begin to tell them why you do that. And you, you begin to tell them because they want to know more. And then other times the answer becomes an argument. And you, that's when you need to shut up and get out. You know, they, wanna, they don't want to hear anymore. You don't want to shove it down their throat. Just, just say a prayer that God later on will use someone else or something else to go on. Trust the Holy Spirit. Too oftentimes, I think we forget about this. The Holy Spirit, you know, I, I preached a couple months ago about the parable of the soils. Go back and listen to that if you weren't here, if you didn't hear it. Allow the Holy Spirit to prepare the soil. Don't try to force the soil. You're going to break your shovel. What's a closed door? Well, a closed door is simply this. A closed door is when their words or behavior says, leave me alone. Leave me alone. God is using you as his representative, and he's told you how to do it. Open doors, closed doors. It's not about you. If the door is closed to you right now, what you want to do is make sure, make sure that people think well enough of Christians so that when the door is open later, another Christian can walk through it and will not be stonewalled because of what you've done in the past. Fourth, use both words and music. By music, I mean the life that we live. The life that we live. By words, I mean the words that we say. Jesus sent them out with a message and with power to heal. He sent them out with word, and he sent them out with the music of their lives. Now, why did Jesus go and, and do miracles and all that? He didn't help everybody, as we pointed out back in the, we were back in the early chapters of Mark. You know, in fact, we, at the beginning, we saw a story where, where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. The next morning, there was a line out the wazoo there for, for people lined up to be healed. And he said, nope. He left them and went, I got to go teach someplace else. What Jesus did is he healed because he was compassionate, but he healed as a way of developing credibility. That wasn't the main thing. You realize that everybody, every single person that Jesus healed and everybody that Jesus raised from the dead died later, don't you? They all died. So all he did was just put a temporary fix on it. Why? Because it gave him credibility. It gave him credibility so he could be heard for the real message, which was turned to God. I want your heart. I want your life. I want you for eternity, not just for the temporal here on earth. If they think that it's all about you and, and, and at the workplace and, and your career, your life, you never help anybody or you're a jerk for Jesus, it doesn't matter how great your words are because there's no impact. Because our music, our deeds is what gives us credibility. Words without deeds have no credibility. Deeds without words have no eternal impact. It does no good for me to be the nicest person when, that they've ever met if they don't know why I'm the nicest person they've ever met. All that does is praise me, not my Lord, not my Savior. I've got to have words with my deeds. We've got to have both of them. I'm going to give you quick, three quick little things here to write under this section of your life notes in the, about being in the marketplace and, and the neighborhood. What do you do? Well, the first is you simply answer those who ask you. You answer those who ask you. That's when you have an open door and a conversation comes up. You answer those that ask you. But you listen before you answer. You listen before you answer. I love what Proverbs 18.13 says. It says, To answer before listening is a folly and a shame. To answer before listening is a folly and a shame. 
You know, you don't come in with a canned little talk and, uh, the, on sharing your faith that you, you've read in a book or you've gone through some kind of uh, evangelism training. And, I, and I've, I've seen people like that. All they have is this, this canned presentation that, they, you know, they learned it in EE or continuing witness training or the four spiritual laws, the Roman, you know, there's, there's a bajillion of them. You know, that's not, what you, that's not what you do. People can tell that. People can tell them. You don't have to be much of a rocket scientist to figure that out. But what you do is you give your answer. With the stress in the word your, you give your answer, not someone else's. Not Chaplain Walt's answer, not Bruce's answer, not Barb's answer. You give your answer. You see, one of the reasons sometimes we're afraid is we don't know what to say. We think we've got to be all articulate and, and sharing our faith, and we have, this, have to have this uh, apologetics and, and theological framework and all that. No, you don't need to explain why C.S. Lewis became a Christian. What you do need to do is you need to explain your reason when they ask you for your hope that you have within you. And it be, may be nothing more than, hey, I was blind, and now I see. That was one guy's answer in the New Testament. Hey, all I know is I was blind. Now I see. He did it. I'm following him. That was his testimony. They didn't need a drug out theological uh, treatise on it. My marriage was messed up, but now it's flourishing. I had these questions, and now they're answered. Just your story. It's good enough. I want to leave you today with, with this understanding that you don't have to tell your story perfectly. If you'll just get out of the holy huddle, if you'll remember what the main thing is, you'll simply look for open doors, telling people what Jesus has done and is doing in your life. The last thing, though, that we need to remember in order to represent God well is this. Leave the results to God. Leave the results to God. I told you I'd come back to John because here's what happened. As they went out, as the 12 went out, some people were open and some people were closed. They went out two by two, and when they came back, they praised God for what had happened. Well, if 12 went out, guess who was included in that 12? Judas. Judas went out. And they didn't come back and say, hey, we all have power except for... No. Judas did so well, they decided to make him treasurer of the group. And then Mark goes to, and John got his head cut off. I think that's why Mark put this in here. Mark is giving the context. Our job, your job, my job is to be obedient, to play our role, to do our part like John the Baptist did, like the 12 did. And sometimes God's going to draw a line with a crooked stick like he did with Judas. Sometimes even the best of us, like John, are going to have our head chopped off, literally. Sometimes the door is going to be wide open. Sometimes the door is going to be absolutely closed. And it's simply our job to go to work tomorrow, to go into our neighborhood tomorrow, to go into all our relationships and represent Jesus well. Because if you're a Jesus follower, you are in full-time ministry, absolutely as much as I am. So let's all go do our part. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!